Amen. Church, let's pray. Father, I confess my heart is stirred. I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop worshiping you. And I thank you now that our worship does not stop. We get to worship you through the word right now. We get to worship you from the inerrant, authoritative word of God, knowing in faith you have a word for your church today. And the fact that you've brought every one of us here means you have a word for us. It is not by accident. And so I pray right now there will be such a spirit of hunger and eagerness and humility before your word now as we come face to face with the living God. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray we would cast all of our anxieties, all of our fears, all of our doubts, all of the stuff that could distract our hearts and our minds today from this past week. We just cast those on you, knowing that you care for us, and we would do well to pay attention and to listen as you minister to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, guard my mouth from error. Say what you want to say to your church. Build us, unify us, strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, increase our love for you and one another. And church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, praise the Lord, church. It is great to be back in the house of the Lord with you. And this is now our fourth message in our summer series called The Fuel for Our Faith, The Miracles of Elisha. Fuel for Our Faith, The Miracles of Elisha. Now, as we've mentioned a few times already, we actually need to go behind that title and realize that these are actually the all awesome, all powerful miracles of an almighty God through Elisha. Okay? Elisha's not the one doing these. He's the instrument that's being used, but it's actually the power of God working in and through him. There is only one hero of every story in the Bible. Amen? Amen. And so we have to understand, fuel for your faith, we need some clarity. What is faith? What is faith? Well, let's get our biblical definition that we've been weaving through this series, and here it is, right from Hebrews 11.1. 1, it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and for the conviction of things not seen. Now, let's break that down into a street-level, applicational definition of what faith is. How do you take that into the workplace? How do you take that into your families? How do you take that with your neighbors? Here it is. Faith. Choosing. That's the word we're going to focus on today. Everyone say choosing. Choosing to believe God's word and acting upon it in his power no matter how I feel, because God is glorified and promises a good result. There's your street-level definition, applicational view from Hebrews 11.1, day-to-day, day-in, day-out definition of faith. Choosing to believe God's word and acting upon it no matter how I feel, because God is glorified and promises a good result. And so this week, this week, We are looking at the critical choice, loved ones, we're faced with this every day, the critical choice each of us is confronted with on a daily basis, not just one time, but over and over and over again, and that our answer to will ultimately determine if we will walk by faith in the situations we face. The answer to this question, and the question we face is this. Write this down. Will I choose God's promise or my pride? Ouch. I don't like that question. Will I choose God's promise in this situation and humble myself under his word and act upon it no matter how I feel in the power of his spirit or will I choose my pride? to do things my own way, to rely on my own perception, my own desire. Will I choose God's promise or my pride? That's the question walking by faith hinges upon every single time. Pride will mask itself in fear. Pride will mask itself in self-assertion. Pride will mask itself as I know what's best. 
Will I choose God's promise and humble myself under it in faith? Or will I choose my pride? And so we are here today out of 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. And if you do not have a Bible, trust me, you're going to want a Bible to follow along today. Put your hand up nice and high. Our ushers are coming forward right now to drop a Bible in your hand. And if you do not have one at home then please make sure that you take that with you and continue to study God's word on your own. All right, 2 Kings 5, 1 to 15, the choice for faith, God's promise, or my pride. Now, before we move any further, you hear that word pride, and our flesh, I guarantee you, maybe it's already happening in some of you right now. Our flesh is rearing up right now. Who are you to talk to me about pride? Who are you to talk to me about my own ways? What are, you, what are you talking about? And, and, and here, here's the reality. That's what your flesh wants you to do. That's what the enemy wants you to do. But I would just say this. Pride gets our backs up. But I want to encourage us this morning for a spirit of humility in this place. A spirit of humility to say, God, when I talk about pride being crushed, this isn't going to be very comfortable for me, probably. But in faith, I'm going to humble myself under your word. And in faith, I want to receive what you want to say to me today. And so I pray for that spirit of me. It has been a pride-crushing week in my life. And I just want to exhort us in that as a church to not miss the provision of God because of our pride. And the problem is this. You say, why do you say all that, Pastor? Well, here's, here's the problem. Pride is the number one killer of faith. Every time. Whether through fear, whether through self-assertion, whether I know what's best, whatever it is, pride is the number one killer of faith. It leads us to put more faith, trust, and hope in ourselves, our ways, listen to this, listen to this list, our thoughts, our abilities, our experiences, well, I got that under my belt, so I can do this, no problem. Experiences, our own desires, putting more faith in our own desires of what I want than we do in putting our faith in God and humbling ourselves and standing on his promises in faith. Number one killer. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I was really struck by this quote this week. He takes it one step further. You'll see it on the screen. I'd encourage you to write this down. C.S. Lewis, the theologian, says this, pride leads to every other sin. It's literally the root of every other sin. It will manifest itself in different ways, but it all comes back to the root of pride. He says, pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Wow. That's heavy, loved ones. And this is just the intro. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. And this is why, this is why, 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble are the ones that walk by faith. But God opposes the proud, and, and the Greek word oppose there means he's actively working against you in love to break you of your pride. To bring you into a place of sweet humility to say, yes, God, your way is not mine. And this is why Hebrews eleven six so clearly states, he says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Can't even please him a little bit. It's impossible. Why? Because if we're not walking in faith, we're walking in what? Say it. Pride. Pride is the antithesis of faith. And why Romans 14, 23 takes it one step further and says anything, look at Paul, it takes it one step further. Think about this. Anything that's not done from faith is sin. Why? Because it's, if it's not done in faith, it's done in, say it with me, pride. If it's not done in faith, it's done in pride, and God opposes the proud. Here in this text, we see a Syrian commander named Naaman confronted with this same choice that we are confronted with today. Will I choose to believe God's word and humble myself to act upon it in faith or will I choose my pride? Will I choose God's promise or my pride? What am I choosing? And we see three critical responses that we must choose, loved ones. Emphasize the word must. Choose in the situations we are faced with each day if we are to overcome our pride by the power of God and walk by faith by his spirit in seeing his promises fulfilled in our lives. Three 
responses we must choose. Now, let's stand for the reading of God's word to honor its authority. 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Naaman, healed of leprosy. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Big statement for today is this. God will fulfill his promises in my situation. I must first remember that he's sovereign over it. God will fulfill his promises in my situation. I must remember that he is sovereign over it. And the key truth which sums up this entire section is this. God sees my situation and has it under control. Do you believe that this morning? God sees it now. Some of you are like, okay, I'm good for the week. I'm good. Boom. I'm out the door. God sees my situation and has it under control. Look at verses 1 to 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, oh, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Let's get some context here. Syria, Syria was the main enemy of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. And Syria is being ruled by a ruthless king called Ben-Hadad. They're wondering if it was Ben-Hadad I or Ben-Hadad II, but we know it was, his name was Ben-Hadad. So look at where Syria is. Let's get some context. So Syria is the gray country that you see in the top right of that screen. And then there's the northern kingdom of Israel, as we already looked at, how it had been divided into the southern and northern kingdoms. The green is the kingdom of Israel. So you can see they're literally right next door. Right next door. Keep that up there while I describe this team. So Naaman, who is this guy named Naaman? He's the commander, it says. Commander, which means the highest ranking officer of the Syrian army, who is described, notice just walk through the description in verses one and two. He's described as a great man. Now when he says great man there, the Hebrew means highly esteemed or important. Naaman was a big shot. Nobody said no to Naaman. Okay, Naaman ruled that territory under the king. He's esteemed, he's highly important with the king of Syria because of the military success. Now, who gave Naaman his military success? Look at this, look at this. Because by him, verse one, the Lord had given victory over or given victory to Syria through him. He's described as a man of valor in verse one. What does the Hebrew word for valor mean? It means this, he's a man of courage, a man of wealth. But the issue here is that he was a leper. Naaman had an issue 
that no man could fix. There was no cure for leprosy. He has an issue that none can fix. And no matter all of his wealth, his status, his power, his servants, empty to fix what his issue was on the outside and on the inside. Couldn't fix it. Now, the word leper there, just so we're on the same page, at the end of verse one, the last word there says leper. Now, you'll notice there if you have a superscript number there and you go down to the bottom of your Bible, leprosy was a term for several skin diseases. Okay, And so in, in the Bible, in biblical times, leprosy was not the same as we classify it today. In biblical times, it was a term used to describe these various skin diseases, but usually involved the skin turning white. White and resulted in skin spots. Why? Because it's literally eating your nerves apart in front of you. So your skin cells are dying, your body's shutting down, and there's, you watch it happen day by day. Sometimes nerves would get so frayed that limbs would fall off of people. And this is what Naaman's dealing with. Now, Naaman's case, at this point, he's still rendered functional, but was slowly leading to his death. Day by day, he'd wake up and see that, be reminded of it. And then verse 2, it goes on to say that when the Syrians had gone on one of their raids in northern Israel. Now, see, there, see how they're so close? What a raid is, it's just a quick in and out military operation. We're going to take a few hundred men, go storm this little town in, in Israel. We're going to take what we need to take, and then we're going to come back. It wasn't a full-scale military campaign. These were little raids just penetrating across the border. They captured on one of them a little Israelite girl, and now she was the servant of Naaman's wife. How would you feel if you were that girl? Think about that. We'll get back to that in a sec. Now, this girl, we don't know much about her, but we do know right from this text that she had great faith in the Lord. You say, how do you know that? Just read the text. She tells her mistress in verse 3 that if Naaman would just go and visit the prophet Elisha, who lived in Samaria... You see there, Samaria is the capital of Israel, but right in the middle, it's the capital city of the northern kingdom. If Naaman would just go and visit the prophet Elisha, he would be healed. Now recall, in the Old Testament times, telling someone to go to the prophet was telling someone to get in the presence of God. That's how they heard the word of the Lord, through the prophet. And so he's like, she's saying, go to Elisha. She's really saying, get in front of God. Turn to the Lord himself. And then verses 4 and 5, Naaman's told what this girl said, probably by his wife. And out of desperation, I mean, would you be willing to try anything? Would you? If you're dying of this incurable disease, and here's your way out, in desperation, he's willing to try anything to be healed. He goes to his king, tells him what this girl has said, and the king sends him on his way to Samaria with an official letter to be given to the king of Israel which told him of the purpose of the trip. Now, recall, we're still in the reign of King Jehoram. Remember, whole miracle at Moab two weeks ago against the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is King Jehoram. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. But before we go any further, we need to stop in these first five verses. Stop and recognize something very important. Did you catch it? God's sovereignty throughout this whole process so far. You say, what's God's sovereignty? That's a big theological term. It's just this. Grudem defines it as this. God's exercise of power over his creation. There's God's sovereignty. God's exercise of power over his creation. Break it down. God is in control. God is in control. Live in the text. In these first five verses, loved ones, we see the sovereign hand of God at work in both major world affairs of entire nations. Verse one, he's giving victory to Syria in battle. The Lord had given. Not Naaman had got. The Lord had given. He's sovereign over major military battles, but also we see him sovereign over the personal and individual circumstances of people. Verses two to four, God sees Naaman's sickness. Notice this. He sees his struggles. He sees his fear when no one else is watching. When he's in his room all by himself. He sees his anxiety that's building up day by day as there's no cure. And he's one day closer to his death. He sees his pain that he won't put on in front of other people because he's the great warrior. 
He sees his, as Naaman's body literally deteriorates in front of his own eyes. And remember this. This is so key, loved ones, if we're going to walk in faith. God, who has the world under his sovereign control and whose eyes roam to and fro across it, is the same God whose eyes are in Naaman's home. Eyes on the battlefield, eyes in the bedroom. Same God. Who is with him when Naaman's alone. Who's with that servant girl who's just lost her family. When the tears, when the fear, when the doubt creeps in, when you don't have to put on the face in front of everyone else as they watch you. The sovereign God sees it. And in God's sovereignty, he sends a servant girl that tells him the on, that tells Naaman the only one he could go to to be healed. Think about how the Lord worked in this girl's heart to extend the mercy and grace and forgiveness to Naaman to say, you can be healed to the very man who killed her family. Are you here today and you're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart? towards someone who has hurt you, towards someone who you think has done you wrong. God sees the pain, loved ones. He sees the hurt. And he's like, the first step of faith is to trust that I'm in control. And I will work this for your good if you follow me. I will work this for your good. But you have to trust me and let it go. Don't fight me for control. Let it go. So question, are you remembering God's sovereign over your situation right now? In that thing you're faced with, when that fear, that anxiety, that anger, the doubt, the discouragement, the pain grip your heart, maybe you've lost something so dear and it's gripping your heart and you want to blame the other people and you feel as though you're alone in it and God doesn't see or even care about what you're facing in that decision you need to make that's in front of you, in that health issue that you are struggling with, maybe it's as debilitating as Naaman's, in that marriage issue when there's the fighting and the tension and the unforgiveness, do you think that God doesn't see it and that he's not willing to work it for your good and for his glory, in that family situation with your children or wanting children, in that addiction you're struggling with, you think God doesn't see that? When you close the door and you go back in the bottle, when you turn on the TV, when you turn on the computer screen, you don't think God's there? He's watching that. He says, I'm over this, loved one. You don't have to go there. Surrender that control. I just want to encourage you in this, loved ones, right here. As lovingly as I can, as lovingly as I can this morning, God sees the situation. He sees it. He's with you. He's with you. He has it under control. And he will fulfill his promise in it for your good and for his glory as you trust him in faith. He will do that. It doesn't mean he's going to fulfill it the way you think. It's not some prosperity gospel we're talking about here. He's not, doesn't mean he's going to fulfill it the exact way you think he will or want him to, but he's going to fulfill it in the way that he knows your heart needs to be restored and redeemed and to ultimately increase your love for him. And you say, well, how do you know this? How do you know God's there? I feel totally alone. Maybe some of you walked in here and you're like, nobody cares. Does God even see it? Oh yeah, he sees it. Look at Psalm 139, 7 to 10. We're so blessed with this this week. Here it is on the screen. Where shall I go, David says, from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is, in the depths of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the seas, even there your hand shall, here it is, ready, ready? Even there, in the depths, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand, the hand of power, shall hold me. Do you know what the Hebrew word for hold there is? It means to grasp tightly and to support. What a picture. Even in the darkest part, even in the greatest day, you are there and you will lead me through it. You will hold me in it. 
will we let him? Let's stop fighting for control. God's sovereignty is a gift, and it is crucial, loved ones, to recognize it if we are to walk by faith. Stop trying to take control, because God will fulfill his promise in your situation. I must remember that he is sovereign over it. I must remember it's not too big for him and he has not forgotten about me. And when we remember this, we realize very quickly that God will fulfill his promise in my situation. I must turn to him alone in it. This is where the recognition of God's sovereignty always leads us. I must turn to him alone in it. Key truth for this section is this. God's call is clear. He says, come to me. God's call is clear, and he says, come to me. Look at verses 5 to 8. So he went, 5b, so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I've sent to you Naaman, my servant, my greatest servant, by the way, Jehoram, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Uh Uh-oh. Uh Uh-oh, what do you think Jehoram's thinking right there? And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. He's seeking to go to war with me. They were at war with each other, these two nations. He's just seeking to pick up another fight. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, look at this, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. See, after receiving the king's approval, Naaman sets off. Now, it wasn't Naaman by himself. You'll see in a moment, he sets off with a whole entourage. Horses and chariots and servants and warriors. Here comes Naaman. Now, notice this. He brings a huge gift. Huge. Ten talents of silver. Do you know how heavy ten talents of silver is? It's 750 pounds of silver. It's not like I'll put it in my pocket and see you there in a few days. He's bringing 750 pounds of just silver. Now he goes to gold. And he brings 6,000 shekels of gold. How much much is that weigh? Hmm, 150 pounds of gold. Naaman's got 900 pounds of precious metal on him in tow. He's coming with his entourage. And not only that, he brings 10 changes of clothes. Good thing, Jehoram just tore his. (laughs) He's bringing 10 changes of clothes that he would give to the prophet who he thought would be with the king. So this is why he goes to the king, because the people of Syria think, well, the prophet of God is going to be with the king who represents God of Israel. Uh, Jehoram did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Elisha wouldn't even be around him. Remember from chapter 3? I wouldn't even look at you nor see you. You're worshiping Baal. Now look at verse 6. But when he arrives and gives the letter to Jehoram, Jehoram reads the letter, believes the king of Syria was asking him to cure Naaman. Nothing about the prophet curing him. Jehoram's like, he reads this, he's like, ah! He's like, Ben-Hadad, who's picking apart my country, now wants me to heal a man of an incurable disease. How would you feel if you were in that? And this was impossible for him to do. Verse 7, in response, Jehoram tears his clothes. Now, now. When someone's tear, I wasn't going to demonstrate this, don't worry. When someone tears their clothes, it's a sign of grief. It's a sign of panic. It's a sign of anxiety. It's a sign of fear. And it's a sign of being immobilized. Oh. Sign of being immobilized, completely immobilized, and thinks the king of Syria is setting him up to make war with them when he can't do what he wants. And then look at verse 8. Love Elisha's response. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Why are you so afraid, Jehoram? Why are you so anxious? That's a question for us this morning. Why are you so anxious? Why are you panicked about that situation? Why are you so afraid? Let him come now to me that he may know there is a prophet 
in Israel. That means let, that he may know that the true God is here. Let him come. That there's a prophet who represents the true, faithful, all-powerful, loving, and gracious God who is in control and will always do what he says he will do. Remember Moab, Jehoram? How the Lord dug ditches for you in a desert and how there was no hint of wind or rain and he brought a water that filled the watershed the next morning and three armies full of men and horses drank and gave you victory over it. Remember that? Why are you tearing your clothes? Look back and see how faithful he's been. Why are you anxious, loved one? Now, before we get on Jehoram here and be like, man, that guy needs some faith. Um, wait, look at our own lives. When you are facing a situation that you feel is too much for you and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're tearing your clothes in grief and anxiety and unbelief and fear, are you turning to that? Is that what you're turning to? Or are you turning to God in faith? Are you turning to him to say, God, I don't see how you're going to work. Here's your promise that you will meet all of my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Your promise that you will work all things together, even the situation for my good. If I, for all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, you will do that, but I'm not feeling it and I need it. And someone think, some people think pastors don't struggle with this. Really, really? Just, well, don't do this. But you could ask my wife sometime and, and do that. She'll tell you. It's a daily struggle, loved ones. Will you do what you say you're going to do? Can I trust you? Or will I go to my pride or trust your promise? See, so often, loved ones, we know in our head God can do something. One of the most disastrous things that could happen today is for you to hear a message like this and be like, yeah, I know in my head God could do it, but then you continue to walk in unbelief when you leave here. Can God really do? See, so many of us, we know the right things. We know that God can do something but we don't actually believe it in our hearts and act upon it in faith? Is our knowledge translating into belief? And is our belief translating into faith? That can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit to say, God, increase my faith. I don't want to just know things. I want to believe. I want to walk with you. I want to see your power, but I need the faith because I'm not there. See, King Jehoram noticed this in verse 8, verse 7, sorry. He says, am I God to kill and make alive? Even though Jehoram did what was evil in the eyes, he knew God could raise people from the dead. He knew the right things. But total unbelief sent him into a panic and immobilized him in fear. It's not enough just to know God can do stuff. It's, Lord, increase my faith. Because I can't even have faith without you working in me. See, so often, you see this on the screen, so often we may profess God, but we're content to turn to other things and live life without him. Yeah, I know God could deliver me, but I'm gonna go back to my own effort and rely on myself. Yeah, I know God could deliver me, but I'm gonna go and rely back onto this addiction to try to numb the pain I'm feeling. Yeah, I know God could deliver me, but I'm just gonna work really hard and my agenda's gonna be all about me and I'm not gonna put godly order in my life because it's really all up to me even though I know God could do something. We do this all the time. We do it all the time. No wonder we so often resort to tearing our clothes and feeling immobilized in fear, anxiety, doubt, exhaustion. How many of us are just exhausted here today? Exhaustion and ultimately unbelief that God will fulfill what he says he will do in our situation when we come to him. When we turn to him. So question, loved ones, who or what are you turning to today in your situation to deliver you from it? Hey, church, love you so much. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. God's call for us today hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Not in the days of Elisha until now, and it never will. 
He's still completely sovereign. He's still completely trustworthy. And he still says, come to me. Come to me in your disappointment. Come to me in your pain. Come to me in your despair. Come to me in your self-sufficiency. Come to me in your darkness. Come to me in your doubt. Come to me in your hurt. Come to me in your uncertainty. Come to me in that provision that you need, that you think you have to go after all these other things. Come to me. So the question is never, church, will God be faithful to fulfill his promise? The question is always, will you turn to him? Will you choose his promise by faith or will you choose your pride? Pride in other things. Pride in self. Pride in fear. Pride, fill in the blank. And some may say this, maybe you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. and you're like this, well, Jesus thing, I just want to speak to you for a sec. If you're here and you're saying, well, there you go again, just using God as a crutch. God's just a little crutch for Christians. You ever heard this before? God's just a little crutch. Hey, it's time to correct. Let's, let's get some good theology on the table right here. God is not a crutch. He is the Christ. Amen? God is not a crutch. He is the Christ. He's not a crutch. He's not some little aid that you take alongside when you just call on him like a little genie and he just props you up for a little bit and then you get rid of it until you can walk on your own strength. He's not a crutch. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one who rescues you, who gave his life for you, who died for you so you don't have to live in the slavery of fear and immobilization in your worry and your doubt and your anxiety. Those things that you're running to, He's made a way for you to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. The one whom all of God's promises are fulfilled in. The one who came to earth as fully God and fully man. Lived a perfect life and was crucified on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That has made us unclean before God. Unclean before God. Spiritual lepers, all of us. Without the saving blood of Jesus Christ separated from God, and by repenting of our sin and confessing him as our Lord and Savior, we can be cleansed. We can receive new life in him and be forgiven. And welcome to the presence of God. It is Jesus Christ who says, come to me. You say, that's a big word. You got something to back that up? Yes, I do. Praise the Lord. Here's a snapshot of three things. Isaiah 55, verses one to three. Here's what Jesus says. Come of that. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, the living waters. Here's a question for us this morning. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Let's put it in today's language. Loved one, why do you work so hard to try to fulfill what only I can give? Why do you do that? Why do you put your trust in those things that will not satisfy you? Even though this world says they will, they cannot. They will bottom out every time. Here he goes on to say, listen diligently. There's a good word for us today. Listen diligently to me. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. And if that's not definitive enough, Jesus goes on to say, Matthew eleven twenty eight. he says, here it is again, come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Hey, loved one, are you feeling heavy laden today? We just live in a world that's just completely exhausted. Using things like caffeine and other stimulants to try to give you that, but just, Look around us. Are you heavy laden today physically, mentally, emotionally, in that trial, in the darkness? You want to have refreshment from the Lord? He's made it available, but you've got to come to him. He loves you too much. He's not going to force himself on you. You've got to come to him. How about this one, John 6, 37? I love this. Jesus says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
Hey, question, loved one, this is for you this morning. This is for me. Will you come to him? Are you tired of running yourself? Will you come to him? You say, well, I'm not good enough to get to Jesus. I've got all this baggage and I've never... He says, come to me. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. He will not reject you when you call on his name and turn from your sin and say, Jesus Christ, I need you as my Lord and Savior. I confess you. I believe that you are the only way to salvation. He says, come to me and you will know my rest. Come to me. You will know my strength. Come to me and you can stand firm on my promises because if we don't, we cannot stand firm on them. They have all their fulfillment in him. Will you turn to him, loved ones? We can't do this without him. We can't do it. God will fulfill his promise in my situation. I must remember that he's sovereign over it. And I must turn to him alone in it. And from that, we must respond in his power. And we must obey his word through it. God is sovereign. God will fulfill his promise in my situation. I must obey his word through it. Key truth for this last section is this. I must have faith in God's word and not my own way. I must have faith in God's word and not my own way. Look at verses 9 to 15. Here it is, climax moment, loved ones. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, there's his entourage, horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. Huh? Naaman was angry. And went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Come on. So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, see their love for him? My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Now look at the first part of 15. God doesn't stop there. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but Israel. This is awesome. See, after getting to Elisha's house, notice what happens. Naaman's greeted by Elisha's servant and given the word of God for how he was to be healed from his leprosy. God promised that if Naaman chose to do it God's way, he would be healed. In essence, here's what God's saying. Do it my way or stay a leper. I love you and I've got a promise to heal you here, but if you don't do it my way, you are going to stay a leper and you will not see my promise fulfilled in you. You have to choose to walk by faith and do it my way. Okay, crucial moment of decision in Naaman's life right here. At this moment, it becomes so clear. Notice how Naaman was described? It becomes so clear that all of Naaman's power, all of his status, all of his wealth and success and influence and strength, his work ethic, guess what? It cannot save him one bit. Helpless. He cannot earn his way into God's promise. He cannot earn his way before God. They cannot save him one bit. Only the saving grace of God can. And the question Naaman is faced with right here, and the same one we're faced with today is this. Would he choose to obey God's word by faith to see his promise fulfilled, or will he choose his pride? One leads to fulfillment, one leads to death. What are you going to choose, Naaman? Right here. What are you going to choose, loved one, when you're in the workplace tomorrow? What are you going to choose, loved one, with your spouse and in your family? What will you choose, Naaman? 
There is no other option if he is going to see this healing happen and God's promise fulfilled, not for him and not for us. And we see two principles here in these last few verses, both here and all throughout scripture, that God consistently brings us back to again and again of how we are to obey his word by faith and see his promises fulfilled in his lives. Catch these. Here we go. These things never change. And you say, well, when we go through them, you're like, well, I've seen those in previous messages. Yeah, that's the idea. That's the idea. To obey God's word by faith, first off, we must obey in his way. To obey God's word by faith, we must obey in his way. Look at verses 9 to 12. So clear. It says this, 9 to 12. Naaman came with his horses and chariots, stood at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored. You shall be clean. Now look at Naaman's response right here. Talk about pride. Here it is, verse 11. But Naaman became angry. He was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought, see this, see this, see this? My way, my way. I thought that he would surely say, come out to me, stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Couldn't I do it that way, God, and see your promise? So he turned and went away in a rage. After initially, see, see what's happening? After hearing God's word through Elisha's servant about Naaman needing to wash in the Jordan River seven times, he becomes infuriated. Why? He wanted personal service. Hey, I'm a big name. I got a big gift. I expect some big service. You're sending me a two-bit servant? You're not even getting out of your desk. Don't you see I got my whole entourage here? Don't you see I got 900 pounds of precious stones for you? Really? You're going to send your servant. You're going to send your servant. But notice this. He wasn't infuriated only that Elisha himself would not come out to him, but he's also infuriated because Naaman's expectations of how he thought he should be healed, notice this, and how he thought God should work on his behalf, it didn't happen. I want God to work this way. It's not happening. I want special treatment. I didn't get, who does Elisha think he is? Now, put yourself in Naaman's text. Before you get all mad at Naaman, put yourself in his shoes. Because we do the same thing. Live in the text. You're the most feared, esteemed, and valued commander in all of Syria. You roll up to this little two-bid house of Elisha's with a big gift, and you expect to get some big service out of this deal. And yet, Elisha doesn't even come to see you himself. He sends a servant and says, go dip in the muddy, filthy Jordan River. Here, here, here. Here's a picture of the Jordan River. See right there? That's it. You're telling me to go here? That thing's a mud pit. It is actually very dirty. That's a mud pit. What do you mean you're going? Hey, 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 hey. At the very least, okay, if you're going to go ask me to dip in some water, God, at the very least, you could have given me some clean water from Damascus to wash in. How about two rivers? I'll give you some suggestions, just in case you don't know what you're doing. How about a bana? And how about Farport? Here, look at these rivers. There's a Bonna River, and here's Farport River. Put them up. So you see them here. Where's the second one? There you go. Nice, green, orchards, rushing, clear water. Hey, God, can I at least dip in there? Can I at least have it a little more comfortable? Can I at least have it a little more my way? My way? You know, it's like that, that song. You hear it? You like, hear that song? I did it my way. So often we sing the same thing. God, do it my way. You know what that is? That's pride. Do it my way. Listen to how commentator Dale Davis puts this. You see it on the screen. How often we already have our idea of how God ought to operate. When he doesn't mesh with our expectations, we become, quote-unquote, disappointed with God. Or we somehow feel that he's let us down. 
So often, we want not only God's benefit, but we want to specify the way in which he must bring it. So the sovereign God becomes our errand boy. Yeah, God, I'll follow you, but it needs to look like this. It needs to look like I'm comfortable. I need to have it my way. On my terms and when I feel like obeying you. Hey, loved ones, let's just put this out there. Make sure we remember it. Walking by faith never keeps you in your comfort zone. Walking by true faith will never keep you in your comfort zone. He will constantly be pushing you toward the Jordan when you want to go to the Abana. Every time. Every time. We do it his way. And we say, why? Because God's ways will always work to humble our pride. Every time. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's a loving thing for him to oppose us. Because it gives, he gives us his grace when we humble ourselves under him. So question, question, loved ones, where, where are you doing this in your life today? Asking the sovereign God to fulfill his promises to you on your terms and in your way. Marriage, do I really need to humble myself first and ask my spouse for forgiveness? No, 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 God, it's more comfortable if they come to me first. Instead of me loving them like Christ Jesus loves his church. How about this? I'll work on my marriage as long as I can keep work my idol. I'll do it my way. I'll I'll, I'll put my family as a priority if I can keep my crazy work schedule. I want it my way. How about this? For that provision or that opportunity. I want God, you want God to provide through your efforts, through my efforts, instead of putting into place his priorities in your family. I'm just going to work harder and harder and harder and rely on myself, 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 instead of slowing down, humbling myself under the word of the Lord that Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm going to abide with him, seek him first, and start to put, by the power of his Holy Spirit, godly order in my life. Seeking him first in how I lead my family and how I disciple my kids in how I conduct myself with purity in my singleness. I don't want it my way. I want your way. My way, I stay a leper. Your way, I am cleansed. Promise fulfilled. See, so often we say, I'll obey you, God, as long as it's with who I want it to be with, when and how I want it to be, because there's no way you can use someone or something I wouldn't have picked. So often we think, God, you did a mismatch here. This is a mismatch. This is a mismatch. Because we never think, actually, God knows what he's doing much better than we do. I want it my way. God's ways will always work to humble our pride. Why? Because pride is the greatest thing that hinders our faith in God's provision. Pride is the greatest thing that hinders our faith in God's provision. Secondly and lastly is this. Two ways. To obey God's word by faith, we must, number one, obey in his way. Number two, we must obey in humility. There it is. God always comes back to the heart. We must obey in humility. Look at 13 to 15. I'll close it out with this. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Has he actually promised that you're going to be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. That's amazing. After initially rejecting the word of God, Naaman's servants see him walking away from the promise of God. How many of us today are just walking away from the promise of God in our pride? It's not my way. It's not the way I want to do that. It's crushing me if I do that. And we're just walking away. Did God really say he would provide for me? Did God really say he would be giving us rest? Did God really say? And we're just walking away. After initially rejecting God's word, his servants see him walking away and is healing for all time. And they appeal to him not to reject it. I'm Naaman, Naaman, Naaman. Hey, did, 
God just actually promised you, Naaman, God actually just promised you that you would be completely healed of that illness that will kill you. There's no other cure. Loved one, there's no other place you can go. Where are you going to run to that's actually going to deliver? Where? They're like, Naaman, you're turning away from the provision because in your pride, you wanted God to do it your way. And you're willing to let your pride keep you from seeing God's promise fulfilled. Naaman, don't do that. Naaman, loved one in this church this morning, don't do that. Pastor Rick, don't do that. Don't do that. Pride blinds us so quickly, doesn't it? He's got the promise of deliverance. He's walking away from it. And after hearing them say this, Naaman finally humbles himself under God's word, dips himself seven times in the Jordan, and is made clean as his flesh is restored to that of a little child. But notice this, notice this. God didn't stop there. Verse 15, he had a greater work in mind because it wasn't only Naaman's skin that needed cleansing, it was his heart. Loved ones, God always comes back to the heart. Why does God, why do his works always oppose our pride to bring us to humility? Because he cares about our heart more than us getting through the circumstance. He cares about our heart. And as Naaman humbled himself unto the Lord, God took his heart and cleansed him from his sin and saved him. Such an incredible picture of God's saving grace. He takes a man who's his enemy, who's up to this point worshiping other gods like Baal in Syria, and he says, I want more for you than just to clean your skin. I want your heart. I'm gonna give you new life with me. Not just in this life, but in eternity. There's a greater work at stake. Trust my promises more than your perceptions. Can you get over wanting it your way? Can you do it my way in the power of my spirit? I'm going to give you everything you need to do that. You call on my name. I save you. I fill you with my Holy Spirit. I cleanse you. And then I give you the strength to follow me in faith. I will do it, but you have to choose to trust me. And he still does this today through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who says if, he is fa- if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us, there it is, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Question, last one of the day, will you make your choice for faith today? That's the question God's posing to Naaman. That's the question God's posing to us right now. Will you make your choice for faith today or will you choose your pride? If you're here, for some of you here, and, and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior up to this point, you think Christians are just kind of those people just kind of out there. Listen, listen, listen. Your first step of faith in choosing God's promise of salvation over your pride is to turn from your sin and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you will see, I guarantee it, he will not cast you out and you will see his promise of salvation on your behalf today. When you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That piece, it's right there. It's like, oh man, I gotta take a step of faith. But what will this mean for me? What will this mean? I'll tell you what it'll mean for you. You are adopted by the Son of God. You do not have to live in guilt anymore. You do not have to live in shame anymore. I'll tell you what it'll mean for you. You do not have to live in fear anymore. That addiction can be broken. That pain you're feeling can be healed. That unforgiveness you're feeling can be released. But you gotta choose to walk by faith, loved one. And say, God, I don't know much, but I know I need you. Believers, If you're here and you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means this. Choosing God's promise over your pride means believing God will fulfill his promise in your situation and for you to remember his sovereignty over it, to turn to him alone in it, and obey his word through it by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. To see the salvation, the deliverance of the Lord on your behalf. It is a done deal, but will you choose to follow him? Will you choose to trust him? What choice will you make today, his way or yours? Let's pray. Father God, that is a stunning word that we have just witnessed in this text. So beautiful. Your grace, your mercy, extending it to your enemies and making him your son. And Father, 
without the saving blood of Jesus Christ, we are enemies of you. Our sin is separating us from you and we can do nothing on our own to remove that. You say it is by grace you are saved through faith. This not of yourselves. So that no one can boast. By grace, God's grace, you are saved through faith. Oh God, give us faith to believe that right now. I pray for that person who came here and maybe they were just brought here by a friend or a relative and they're like, I don't even know why I'm here. Lord, I pray this would be very clear why they're here right now. And today when they hear your voice, they would not harden their heart. They would say, I don't know much, but I know I need Jesus. Lord, save me. Return from my sin. And for those brothers and sisters here who've made that decision, and they're just feeling weary, and they're filled with fear and doubt and worry and anxiety, and all of these things, God, that can so often immobilize our heart, I pray right now would be a day of release. I pray right now they would choose to stand on your promises in your word and say, God, I need your power in me I need your power in me to believe that what you say is true and you're gonna do every single thing. Take it out of my head and put it in my heart and then put it in my feet and put it in my hands and put it in my mouth. I wanna do it your way. Bring me to that place of humility to do it your way. On my own, I stay a leper and die. But with you, I am cleansed and your promise will be fulfilled and you will be glorified. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. And I pray that as we sing this song right now, this would be a declaration of this truth. That only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can help. Only Jesus can comfort. Only Jesus can provide. Only Jesus can. May it be so today. In Jesus' name.